I'll just say a quick prayer. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to not only stand, um, study such a, an amazing doctrine. In our day, you wouldn't think that I'd have to do this. And in our church, you don't want to have to do this. But, you know, this is why we emphasize our confession so much. If there is a problem in the evangelical church today, it is that we have made regeneration and justification as synonymous terms. And, of course, our confession is chapter 10 of effectual calling, chapter 11 of justification. But the problem is, we rightly understand that nothing that comes from us assists to justify us. We have to look out of ourselves objectively to the substitutionary curse-bearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. But the devil is subtle. And what the devil does is say, yes, yes, no works. And we try to emphasize the new birth, and this doctrine hasn't been properly emphasized. I believe if it was, you wouldn't have the kind of writing that we got from Jerry Doris. Because what's missing in these writings, what's missing in what happened to the federal vision, what is even in the writings of N.T. Wright and that whole group that is missing it's a doctrine of the new birth. There's no emphasis on regeneration. They understand that man has to be acquitted in a court setting. They understand something about justification, but they don't properly appreciate that man by nature has a corrupt heart. And because we already know our confession, I'm go not going to read paragraph one, but I picked up A.W. Pink's work called Regeneration in a new birth this morning, and I think it says what I'm trying to communicate here. Two chief obstacles lie in the way of the salvation of any of Adam's fallen descendants. Bondage to the guilt and penalty of sin. Bondage to the power and presence of sin. Or in other words, they're being bound for hell and they're being unfit for heaven. Well, they're bound for hell because of a legal sentence against them, but they are unfit for heaven because they have corrupt hearts by nature, and God has to deal not only with the one problem of man's bad state, but also his corrupt disposition, or he would be unfit for heaven. He wouldn't. People don't even think about it. He would be miserable in heaven. Uh, standing there before the Lord Jesus Christ, who if he were on earth, they would have spit on him and crucified. That's our hearts. That had to be changed in the new birth. And this has to be properly emphasized in our day. But then who can be saved was the question the disciples asked Christ. And they answered, with men, this is impossible. Two things are absolutely essential in order to salvation. He's just repeating this in another paragraph. Deliverance from the guilt and penalty of sin. Deliverance from the power and presence of sin. The one is secured by the mediatorial work of Christ. The other is accomplished by the effectual operations of the Holy Spirit, the application of redemption. The one is the blessed result of what the Lord Jesus did for God's people. The other is the glorious consequence of what the Holy Spirit does in God's people. The one takes place when having been brought to lie in the dust as an empty-handed beggar, faith is enabled to lay hold of Christ. God now justifies from all things, and the trembling, penitent, but believing sinner receives a free and full pardon. 
The other takes place gradually in distinct stages under the divine blessings of regeneration, sanctification, and glorification. When you're dealing with people who say that they really lack a strong assurance of salvation, and you point to the objective, you must look out of yourself and look to Christ, and so on, What's interesting is they can never be satisfied with just that, but they also want to see within themselves the fruits that they have been brought from death unto life. What do I have within me that can only be explained by being born again and the governing disposition, the mind, the heart, and the affections have been changed in regeneration. It will have some fruit, and they're never going to be totally satisfied until they see that fruit. But for a number of reasons, examining that fruit isn't always easy. And I've always had a fascination for this. And in our first lesson, I quoted Samuel Pike and Samuel Hayward. And I'll mention this book over and over. It came out in 1755. And these were a couple of Presbyterian pastors in London. And they were sent letters of these kinds. Science is called Christian casuistry, and they were sent these letters and they answered them between 1755 and 1859. That book was never out of print. It was always reprinted. But the thing that really hit me this week about that is, and this is what I was trying to communicate to Jerry Doris, that within the Presbyterian Church, and I try to establish where it happened at Princeton, But these Presbyterian pastors from 1755, when it came to casuistry and the conversion of children and so on, you don't hear any kind of speak about covenant children or anything. It changed about between Archibald Alexander and Charles Hodge at Princeton. Because we've been studying thoughts on religious experience by Archibald Alexander, and I read this. And I said, I'm in agreement with so much of this. But by the next generation, Charles Hodge, who was raised in a Christian family, began to really put his emphasis on the covenant-nurturing model of parenting. And it was the first time you really began to see things like presumptive regeneration or assumptive regeneration. And that is, well, we'll assume because of the promises made to Abraham and the covenant and our children are part of the covenant, that our children are converted unless they show clear manifestations to the contrary. And now it's so convoluted. Uh, When I was teaching a class on the conversion of children, and I was quoting Mark Horn, one of the signers of the Federal Vision, the Auburn Avenue Theology. I mean, it's so convoluted now that he doesn't even look for a conversion in his children. He says, I have no right to ask to see a conversion in my child because he assumes he is a child all along because of his infant baptism. On another historical note, It is interesting that that's the reason that J.C. Philpott left the Church of England. He could not stand that part of the 39 articles that seemed to indicate that just on the basis of a child's baptism, they are in the church and they are regenerate. And uh, that's 
But I want to read this again by Pike and Haver because these are the questions that people that really have an interest in this and lack assurance, and uh, these are the questions that they want answered. So here's the question. Reverend, sir, I'm a person who have for some years been a professed follower of Jesus, have had a place in his house, enjoyed the great privileges, and have advantages above many, sitting under a sound, faithful, and tender minister. But under these means of fruitfulness, I, alas, seem barren and unprofitable, and I'm afraid I go backward in religion and make advances in sin. And what is worst, my heart is so hard that I do not mourn over these declensions as I ought. You know, it's fun. It's fun to read those, and this is what I want to do on my podcast. You know, make an on-the-spot comment on what this person is expressing. Let's do that here. He says, what is worst, my heart is so hard that I do not mourn over these declensions as I ought. Well, my first question is, how do you know your heart is hard? You're not feeling as you suppose it should feel. So already right there, we know that something above mere nature is going on there. The natural man does not bear witness that your heart is hard. I mean, you know, it's ironic that even the lamentation of your heart being hard is, in a sense, part of uh, real repentance because you're confessing something that you don't want to be there. And he says, And therefore I fear I am not properly affected with him. No sinner does a temptation offer, but I fall in with it. These are such good questions. So that I often think whether my refraining from gross immoralities is not more for lack of temptations than from a real hatred of them and a love of holiness. And yet I hope, I sincerely strive and pray and resolve against sin and Christ's strength, being convinced that I have none sufficient of my own, but can I sincerely do this and fall so frequently? I attend on the gospel ordinances, but I fear to little purpose, being cold and lifeless under them all. I hear the love of Jesus sweetly displayed, but this icy, frozen heart is not melted. And as I said when I was commenting on Ruth Bryan's diary, I could have made that same claim in the last week. You know, I mean, you just described my icy, frozen heart is not melted. I mean, how many times in the public assembly in we're in the pews, we're not up front, and you're singing along in the hymns, and you know your mind's drifted off from the words of the hymn, and you just say, this isn't supposed to be this way, you know? So anyway, he... One more sentence. I cannot call him my redeemer, lest I should be deceived in my own soul. And yet I dare not say I have no part in him, lest I should be ungrateful and deny his work. There is a book called The Guide to Christ, um, Solomon Stoddard. Solomon Stoddard was the paternal grandfather of Jonathan Edwards. And he. Uh, the introduction was written by Increase Mather. Increase Mather was a father of Cotton, and those were the two that they tried to pin to the Salem Witch Trials. And I actually defended Cotton Mather for one of our podcasts for the Men of God Network because I had actually read the history on the other side, you know. But I, it just showed this guy, you know, was a president of Harvard, and you look at what Harvard is now, and you look at, oh, what an 
abomination. These people are so uh, mixed up and they want to. What a double standard. But this is from a president of Harvard College for 20 years. It has been an error, and a tyrannical one, in some preachers that they have made their own practical experiences a standard for all others. Whereas God is pleased to use a great variety in bringing his elect home to Christ. Although conversion is to the substance of it is the same in all that are brought into a state of salvation, some have experienced such terrors and distress of conscience as others have not been acquainted with, who nevertheless are true believers on Christ. Very often the children of godly parents who have had a religious education and been kept from all scandalous sins that wound and waste to conscience have been favored with an easy as well as an early conversion. The seed of grace has sprung up in their hearts, they know not how, Matthew 4, verse 27. So as that, although they can say, as a blind man restored to his sight did, one thing I know, that whereas I was blind, now I see, at a particular time they cannot account for, says John Norton, one of the early New England Puritans. Our duty to bless God that we are converted and not groundlessly to afflict ourselves about the time of our conversions, and he cites William Pimble, whose words are, to tell the month, day, or hour wherein they were converted is in most converts impossible in all of exceeding difficult observation, though I do not deny that the time may be in some of sensible mark. Now this really, I found this so interesting because I studied all this stuff. I was very, very interested in was the type of conversion that Christian had before he entered into Wicked Gate with a heavy burden on it. How common was that in these days? But you just, what you come away with is the sovereignty of God and his ways of Proceeding with this electra so very various and mysterious and so on. But I caught uh, this paragraph really made an impression. That eminent man of God, Richard Baxter, relates that he was once at a meeting of many Christians as eminent for holiness as most in the land of whom a number were ministers of great fame. And it was desired that every one of them would give an account. I mean, these are probably the best Puritans in the land, you know, meeting together. That every one of them would give an account at the time and manner of his conversion. And there was but one of them all that could do it. And, says he, I aver from my heart that I neither know the day nor the year when I began to be sincere. I mean, how much in the independent funnel Baptist circles do they always point you back to that time you wrote in your book or you walked forward or whatever... And then you read this and you say, our God is a lot bigger than you make him out to be. Nevertheless, for the most part, they that have been great sinners are not converted without dreadful terrors of conscience. That's so interesting. Archibald Alexander, and this is a book that we're studying. This is chapter 3. This is class 3. There are doubtless great diversities in the appearances of the motions and actings of spiritual life in its incipient stages in the beginning the agent is the same the deadness of the subject the same the instruments the same and the nature of the effect the same in every case but still there are many differing circumstances which cause a great variety in appearance and expression such is the degree of vigor and the principle of the life communicated. I know indeed that there are some who entertain the opinion that the new creature as it comes from the hand of God if I may so speak is in all respects identical or of equal value, but this is not 
the case. There are doubtless great diversities in the appearances of the motions and actings of spiritual life in its incipient stages. Jonathan Edwards' narrative, and again, when I point, this is his narrative of the revival that came in 1733, so he is all a 30 years old, and he's making these observations that the people were not looking at the awakening part of prior to their conversion, but his description of what he sees as many of them begin to turn from death unto life. And he says that calm of spirit that some persons have found after their legal distresses continues some time before any special and delightful manifestation is made to the soul of the grace of God is revealed in the gospel. But very often some comfortable and sweet view of a merciful God, of a sufficient Redeemer, or of some great and joyful things of the gospel immediately follows or in a very little time. And in some, the first sight of their just deserts of hell and God's sovereignty with respect to their salvation and a discovery of all-sufficient grace are so near that they seem to go, as it were, together. So it's definitely worth reading his descriptions of what he witnessed as many people who are under this awakening begin to have hope. The opinion, Archibald Alexander, commonly entertained, you may have heard this before, that the most enormous sinners are the subjects of the most pungent convictions of sin and the most alarming terrors of hell. This isn't correct. In regard to such, the commencement of a work of grace is sometimes very gradual, and the impression so apparently slight that they afford very little ground to sanguine expectations of the result. You see something of a conviction or reformation, and you don't expect much. While on the other hand, some persons of an unblemished moral character, and who from the influence of a religious education have always respected religion and venerated its ordinances, when brawn under conviction are more terribly alarmed and more overwhelmed with distress than others whose lives have been stained by gross crimes. You know, I can't read that without thinking about this Sunday school that we had and and I want to be real discreet about how I say this, but, you know, Nichols has always been so thorough, and we're studying assurance of salvation, and he just goes through all the Bible, and every verse that has a mention of assurance and that, he's, you know, going to go through it with us. And this lady who her father was a deacon and later an elder or whatever, she was raised in a Christian home, and, you know, we were talking about the Romans 7, uh, 14 to 25, that which I would, I do not, the evil that I hate. And she said that she couldn't identify with that confession because she was raised in a Christian home and didn't fall into, you know, a lot of sins and so on. And what she's describing and what's being described here are two different things. Irregardless of how well you were raised, he's saying some people brought up in the best means of grace or whatever sometimes have terrible alarms prior to their conversion. I'm going to give you a couple of examples of this. This is kind of fun. Um, The differences in people, you know, good, good Christian men in their conversion. John Newton, when awakened to some sense of his sinful and dangerous condition, which occurred during a violent and long-continued storm at sea, though his judgment was convinced that he was the greatest of sinners, and he doubted whether it was possible for him to be saved, yet seems to have had no very deep feelings or agitating fears. He says, quote, It was not till after perhaps several years 
did I gain some clear views of the infinite righteousness and grace of Christ Jesus my Lord, that I had a deep and strong apprehension of my state by nature and practice. And perhaps till then I could not have borne the sight. So wonderfully does the Lord proportion the discoveries of sin and grace. So, you know, a lot of people say he was converted right there at that storm or whatever when he feared for his life. And he's saying it's possible he was awakened, but it was sometime after that that he really seemed to be enlightened to what the gospel was. Cotton Mather. And, you know, in our day, you mentioned Cotton Mather, and there's so many people that will malign him. And in history, they put him at Salem during the Salem witch trials. And uh, that's why I thought it was worth my time to say, well, he lived 20 miles away in 1691. It's a little harder to go 20 miles on Horth than it would be even 200 years later. But what's not well known is how godly this man was. And he was, he was a cousin uh, to Jonathan Edwards through somebody marrying uh widow of uh, one of Jonathan Edwards' grandparents, but Cotton Mather and Jonathan Edwards were cousins, but Mather, and I studied his life, and you know, we always hear about how godly Edwards was and how strict a life. It was every bit the same in Mather. There were something like over 400 indications in his diaries and his diaries is about three volumes that over 400 indications of him fasting did like setting the day apart for just fasting and prayer and so on is probably way over scrupulous but i mean these are these were good men that founded this country but anyway i'm comparing their conversions but the best and brightest part of Dr. Mather's character in younger life is still behind. That is his early piety, for which he was no less remarkable than for his natural capacity and his progress in human learning. He seemed indeed to be sanctified from the womb, for as soon as almost he began to speak, he began to pray, and never left off again as long as he lived. While he was a schoolboy, he labored to promote the exercise of prayer amongst his schoolfellows, not only by exhorting them to it, but composing some forms of prayer for their use. You know, he also had writings to assist the Native American Indians, too. You know, they all seem to take such an interest in missionary endeavors. Though It says, though, for his own part, he needed not, nor did he use the help of any set forms in his private devotions. Now, that's gotten Matthew Robert Bolton, who lived around the time of um, Richard Sibbs, one of the earlier Puritans, and his works were a lot. It's just that, you know, when you die in 1631 and that's the last time they publish some of your words, some of that's pretty hard to put into English. But, but listen to this. We're doing a contrast and a compare. Before his conversion, he was very wicked. He loved stage plays, cards, and dice, was a horrible swear, Sabbath breaker, a boon companion that neither loved God nor good men. He hated puritanical preaching. This man, after his conversion, was an eminent saint and a successful minister of Jesus Christ. But the manner of his conversion, and we would say his awakening, not his conversion. You know, we have to remember, awakening itself doesn't necessarily issue in conversion because those are legal fears. They're not evangelical fears. Uh, 
that kind of awakening that Christian had with the burden on his back before he gets to the wicked gate, those are all legal fears. It's his awakening. God uses it to empty us of our self-righteousness, but they in and of themselves don't necessarily guarantee conversion. But his awakening was terrible. His sins were so heavy upon him that he roared for anguish of heart, which sometimes he would rise out of his bed in the night for anguish of spirit and to augment his misery. He was afflicted with grievous temptations. These heart-piercing sorrows continued for many months. They issued in a sound conversion. And in closing, I want to look, and I did a podcast on this, but it, this isn't really very long, and it's instructive. And if you study this stuff enough, and you study everything you can on the subject, and Pastor Wilson, I have spent hours, because I watched the internet unfold. It started with me. I was online in 1991. By 1997, I had full internet. And when I discovered what they were doing at books.googles.com and archive.org, I tried to find anything and everything I could about these type of subjects because of the lengthy awakening I went in through myself. That's why I'm drawn to these to study Christian experience is a bigger thing for me than Christian history. And I tell people this. I, I needed the help of Thoughts on Religious Experience by Archibald Alexander. I needed that so bad. I did not have any kind of instruction like that down in the Bible Belt. The history comes in because you know the name Archibald Alexander. You discover he was a professor at Princeton. And you're so enamored with the wisdom of the men that you start to study the church history around the times. And that's how the love of church history came because of my love of studying this stuff and revival. And that's why it pains me to think that this stuff is being neglected in our day. And it's such a burden on me to get it back on the map some way, shape, or form. But there are some things in her diary that may not stand out, but I'll point them out. She lived from 1805 to 1860, so it's just as 1822. You know, she's still a teenager. 1822, I'm going to aim at keeping a kind of diary to write down my feeling, thoughts, and the occurrences of the days as they pass away in hopes of finding it beneficial. May the Lord grant his blessing. Sunday, September 1st, 1822. Attended the 7 o'clock prayer meeting this morning for the first time. The affectionate prayers which were offered up for my dearest father affected me. Father died just a couple of years later. May they be answered. Seemed to have some feeling, some, some feeling about divine things. But alas, this afternoon, am as stupid as usual. I always point out to the audience the way the you stupid meant obduracy of heart. Not feeling anything, feeling hard as a stone or whatever. And then she goes, nothing, nothing will break this hard Heart, and as I said and hinted at this morning, that well, how do you know your heart is hard? Uh, something above divine nature must be at work here. The services of another Sabbath are over. How have my privileges been abused? I feel this evening I cannot tell how. I know not which way to turn. Oh, that I may be directed by the Spirit of Truth to the right way of happiness. Monday, September 2nd, has spent this afternoon at a friend's. Alas, alas, I still have to mourn my insensibility to serious things. Indeed, I seem not to have any desire. I, I didn't really copy a lot of this, but it's a couple of things still to point out. 
the editor and you know editors in these books sometimes their comments are very very helpful and I'll tell you my favorite I think for insight in a biography if you ever uh, get a chance to pick it up it's the uh, biography of Edward Payson and the editor is a man named Asa Cummings and I found out that he edited a magazine in the day, but his observations on the overscrupulosity of Edward Payson as a young Christian boy, you know, it, he would make comments like in his diary that my mom stood in vain at the door just to get me to have a glass of milk. I mean, he just became so austere, and I, I love editors that have that pastoral insight that can point that out, that this is extreme, you know. We we have to help people out yeah. that are have this kind of monastic view of the Christian life, and that was early Edward Payson, and I, that's why I love these editors. No, so the editor says, reader, this may appear a strange expression from a quickened, living soul, and that's enlightening. I mean, he believes at this point she was already quickened, living soul. But you have known nothing of heaven been brought so low under the power of unbelief and the entanglements of worldliness, carnality, and sin as to brought to halt, to hesitate, to doubt, and in your inner heart to sigh for even desire after spiritual manifestations and such tokens of mercy as you had once hoped were yours. Was not the prophet here when he said, My strength and my hope has perished from the Lord? So, finishing up her diary. I fear that I am not affected as I ought to be, and have only a faint desire to become a Christian. And that, every word is important, merely to escape hell. Lord, have mercy upon me. Lead me aright. Break this hard, 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 Lord. Know what it would have, even the forgiveness of my sins, and so on. So, she is afraid that her motives to come to the Lord Jesus Christ are merely legal, servile, selfish, mercenary, we call them. I want to escape hell. But here's the question. Then she prays, break this hard, hard heart. That is not a legal prayer. That is an evangelical prayer. All throughout the Psalms, you know, uh, David in Psalm 32 and David in Psalm 119 and then Paul in Romans 7, 14 to 25. And if you have ever listened to some of my podcasts, I actually did a radio podcast on Romans 7, 14 to 25. Pastor, I have very, very little patience for people that take Romans 7, 14 to 25 and say that that is not a Christian. And this is why. By nature, we are at enmity against God, Romans 8, 7, not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. How does a person who that is their state say, like Paul, that his delight is in the law of God, but he finds another law warring in his members? The Holy Spirit has created a new life in him. And I think it's also important as Reformed Baptists, when we talk about what has happened in regeneration, we point them back to this is the fulfillment of the covenant of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, I will write these things on their hearts. They are written on the hearts and the mind. The new mind now says, I want to obey them. 
that's the spirit that comes from heaven. It's a Holy Spirit. When he creates a new man and he puts a law in the heart, he has to create the inclination and the continual volition and the affection to carry it out. This evening heard a sermon from John to 11, but alas, felt next to nothing. Oh, Lord, break this heart into 10,000 pieces. That's just a, a first month and what's so amazing it was this is 1822 uh where i finally really can read in her diary that i would say that this lady was really enjoying a strong assurance of salvation it was after 1829 and you would say well we don't hear stories like that in our day but i do because i got a facebook group called thoughts on christian experience and assurance and i do hear these lamentations and as somebody that went through this for a considerable time it's within you to try to help Um, what is the reason that somebody was converted possibly in 1822 and they don't enjoy the assurance of their salvation until 1829 the problem with that is that that's how many years you're fighting the Lord's battle, not even sure if the Lord is leading the battle. How do you fight? I'm just going to close with just this question, Michael. And these are, you know, I'm not going to answer this here, but this is what's so good about the type of questions they asked and the type of answers they gave back in 1755. Pike and Hayward's cases, conscience case 30. What judgment must a person form about his state, about his condition? Or what must he do if he is in total darkness and cannot see anything of a work of grace in his heart? This is a question I mean, these pastors were answering. The pastor's inbox. What difference is there between a hypocrite and a real believer? The one is always full of self-flattery, entertaining the kind of thoughts of his state. The other writes bitter things against himself, ever humble and afraid, less than entertaining the hope of an interest in Jesus. He would be esteemed presumption. It's amazing that those are the type of things that... What what's on your heart? Do you have to leave right away, Michael? No. Um, okay, so this is less about somebody who's under awakening. Uh, it's more just uh, somebody who's a Christian, you know, who's been a Christian who has at least some level of assurance. Um, and what made me think of this was the question that you had read from Cases of Conscience. And I was wondering, it seems like many... Christians experience a sense of mourning over their sin and really being disappointed with themselves in a way. And what I'm wondering is, how do you discern the difference between mourning over your sin in a way that's appropriate and normal and healthy and that not being healthy or it being an indication that, no, you actually aren't where you're supposed to be spiritually? You know, because like, Every, you know. Right. Well, let's go back to something I said before, and it's even in our catechism, and this is really, really where we got to lay the foundation is any kind of mourning for your sin that's only afraid of the consequences that God is the judge. What's the missing element in that kind of a mourning? Hope. Hope. It's not evangelical because really uh, he's secretly trying to earn something from God by his mourning. He's really afraid of God punishing him, and that's his only motive for putting. And conscience can make a person, in a way, appear, and to himself appear, reformed and 
making some progress against his sin, while there's still no real any loathing of the sin itself, because there's real no love to God. And once you love God and you've experienced his purity and you know what pleases him, the groaning within breaks the heart. But it, it always has hope. Now, without a doubt, the devil can uh, play upon the weak believer and make him think that his motives. But that's why it's so important to have a strong assurance of salvation because what happens to people is they unsaint themselves and then they say, well, I'm not a Christian, and then they get into this whirlpool and then all of their uh, trying to mortify their sins, trying to mourn for their sins, all of it is from legal motives because they can't possibly picture God as a father. They always picture him as judge, and so they get deeper and deeper into this morass. And you can reason with them, and sometimes they just can't hear what you're saying. Those are the people that we need God while they're reading the Word to just take the Word. Like Pastor Ben Carlson was doing on Sunday morning. That really helped me out, September 18th, 1986 to go through the I Am passages of John, but something was going on that night because those verses were so gripping me. And you, you, know, you know when something above mere nature is just fastening to you, God's word and just driving out and dispelling the fear. And if that's too subjective for some people, you need to read John Owen on the forgiveness of sin and so on. What do you, can you add to Pastor Wilson? I don't think I can add anything to to what you said. You can see the need why this stuff has to be taught to, and what yeah. it. You would think you would think there would be a draw to it. Yeah. You know. Tell me those books again. Uh, Archibald Alexander, Thoughts on Christian Experience. Thoughts on religious, religious experience. Back experience. then, they substituted religion for, you know, like the fruits of. Christian. Yeah. And the question and answers from the two Presbyterian brothers were... So that's uh, what what I would do. Uh, write down the website. On the wing, one word. On, you said that to me once. And yeah, I on the wing.org. And the authors are Samuel Pike and Samuel Hayward. So you go down alphabetically and they have it in... What you would want to choose with your Kindle is uh, Moby format. And uh, that way you can use the table of contents or whatever. But, you know, um, I was overjoyed when this guy read this and decided he would put it in a Kindle format for me because I've been trying to make this work come alive for years again. And I wish there was a real interest. And you have another question, Michael? Um, well, it's basically related to the first one, but... A normal, so a normal, and you, you were somewhat entering this, but maybe um, what would be the, this would be like the whole big picture aspect of it. What, how should a healthy Christian view himself? I guess like, um, you, you kind of want to be able to look at yourself and, and see that you're growing and stuff, but at the same time we see so much sin. And sometimes it's just disappointing, it seems like, to look at ourselves at all. Is that supposed to, is it supposed to be that way? I mean, or... Well, if I could uh, 
use Jonathan Edwards as how he treats this set. Um, in his treatise on the religious affection, there's a lot of emphasis on what's called a disinterested affection. And what he's saying there is, by disinterested, that you're being drawn out to the forgiveness of sin and Christ and God as a father and the covenant thing that your own interest is forgotten because you're so taken up with this. And he thinks and taught that that's the highest form of affection. So we never want to stay in that morass of always self-examination because there's no bottom. I mean, if even Jonathan Edwards says, when I look into my heart, I see an abyss infinitely deeper than hell. That's what he said. So we do, whether or not Edwards was exactly right on his definition of true virtue, and people like Robert Dabney argue that he wasn't, the thought is right that you want to be so taken up with the forgiveness and lost in wonder, love, and praise and your assurance so strengthened that your mind is taken off self because the more you see of what is provided for you, the more your self-righteousness is going to get a hit on the head anyway, which is absolutely needed. Uh, and, and I could say this now over 40 years, uh, as a professing Christian and examine myself and so on, it's the, you're never going to get to where you properly appreciate like you should what the substitutionary curse bearing is and what is provided for us because we, if you read the forgiveness of sin by John Owen, there's a section in there on verse 4 when he starts to expound on there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. He talks about why for some, or why naturally, assurance is hard to get. Because it has to be revealed from without you, because our conscience and our nat nature knows nothing of forgiveness. All it knows is the law is implanted on the heart, and if you violate it, you mm. shall die, or God mm. is so... By nature, we're always like a guard, he says, at a fort. And somebody comes to the guard and says, you're no longer needed here. The war is over. And he's not about to let, he doesn't know anything about an offer of mercy now that the war is over. All he knows is I'm put here to guard this fort and I can't give it up. He doesn't know anything about forgiveness, substitution or whatever. All he knows is there's a war going on. And I have to guard the fort. And that's conscience by nature. And, and so what's interesting, if you read John Owen on the forgiveness of sin, and you read Thomas Goodwin on his works, volume eight, on justifying faith, the objects and acts of justifying faith, and you get in there and read the chapters where they talk about the difficulty of faith. In our day, that's such an unknown concept. But what they're talking about is because... For faith to be revealed, it has to overcome all of the obstacles that are standing in its way. And conscience knows nothing of forgiveness. It only knows that he that sins shall die. And so until God speaks peace, we know nothing about peace. It has, But it's amazing to me the amount of time that 
Goodwin takes to establish that and then tries to help somebody with the promises and believing. We don't think of forgiveness in our days anything but easy. You know, some people struggle really with the concept of free forgiveness. Luther did. So what's so good about your questions is they really put the finger on the pulse of so many people that have the same questions that really want an assurance, you know. If I am, John Newton, if I am, why am I thus? Why am I thus if I am saved? So those are healthy questions. 